From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. Yeah. All right. So today is squirrel. Today is um, we're going to go into Genesis. We're going to continue. We're going to finish Genesis chapter 28. And um, this, if you'll remember from this week, this is now Jacob going back to Padam Haran to be with Uncle Laban uh, to get away from his brother Esau because he stole the blessing. Esau's hot-headed, is going to destroy his brother if he shows up. Um, Mom told him to go to see Uncle Laban, let Esau cool off, and then come back. Oh, and while you're there, why don't you get a wife? And so this is Jacob's journey. And he's not taking a lot of people with him. He, he's kind of by himself. And I kind of call this a walkabout. I mean, he is basically trying to find himself and figure out who he is and who God is and all that sort of thing. So Jacob's now going to Uncle Laban's house. And on the way, he stops at this place called Bethel, um, the house of God, Bethel. Um, and while he's at Bethel, he finds a stone, puts his head on it, falls asleep. And while he's sleeping, he has this dream. And it's a dream about angels ascending and descending on a ladder. We call this Jacob's Ladder. And lots of interpretations to this. But for me, what I get out of Jacob's Ladder is that God is active in this world. He's not, there, there was a theology that was really, really popular. I guess it's still popular that God created the world and he set it in motion, and then he stepped back from it, and he doesn't really get involved in the world. And so anything that happens in the world, like evil things that happen in the world, have nothing to do with God, because God just set it in motion, and he's kind of got a hands-off approach. That's called deism. And a lot of the people in the 1700s were deists. They, uh, they saw God as a distant, far God who wasn't really active in the world, which according to the Christian faith, is not true because on Pentecost, God sent his Holy Spirit upon his church and the Holy Spirit lives inside of his church and God does things in the world through his church and God's very active in the world. So deism isn't really quite what we're talking about here. And um, and I think for Jacob's ladder, the fact that we see angels going up and down Jacob's ladder to me means that God is really active in the world. And it's also a precursor or a foreshadowing of Jesus who also came down and went back up the ladder. So there's lots of different interpretations of that. And um, I don't know if there's any one perfect interpretation of it. Uh, but now we're going to get to the end of Genesis 28 and we're going to see uh, one other, a couple other things that are really interesting there. So um, let's see. Did we finish reading? Uh, well, let's just be, read the, we'll read the last verse here. This is at the very bottom. Um, the, we'll start at verse 14, which is kind of the fourth or fifth sentence down. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. So this is God talking to Jacob. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I would have done what I promised to you. So this is kind of God's promise to Jacob that basically everything you see around you, this is your land from the north, south, the east, the west. 
and you'll have more descendants than the dust of the earth. Now that is a lot of descendants. Um, and so that is, that is awesome that he gets, you know, this blessing from God. Um, so, and this is part of the dream. So when Jacob wakes up from the dream then, uh, th that's where we're going to kind of pick up the story. So let's just go ahead and see Jacob waking up from his dream and we will, um, oh, oh man, didn't want to do that. Oh man, 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 man. Hold on, hold on. Uh, Sorry, I lost. I was trying to do two things at once, which you should never do when you're live on, on television or whatever I am. I'm just, I, I don't see, I don't see my, okay. So, something happened and I don't see my voice meter like I used to. Something happened. And so I never know if I'm actually recording. But I would assume that somebody would call me or text me if I'm not recording. Nobody has. All right. So we're going to pick it up on verse 16. Here we go. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So when Jacob wakes up, he's a little bit frightened because of this dream. Uh, because when you have an encounter with God, sometimes it is frightening, right? Um, when you see the power, I mean, think of when Moses had his encounter of God. The first thing he does is he kneels down. He realizes this is holy ground and he doesn't want to. When, when Peter uh, is, is fishing and Jesus uh, says, cast your net, and, and Peter comes to the realization that this truly is not just a prophet, but a man of God. And, you know, maybe even God himself. I mean, Peter kneels down before him. Whenever you're in the presence of God, um, it is an, it's a very emotional, frightening thing that happens. And so, uh, so of course, Jacob, when he has this dream and real, I mean, he must have really realized that this is the presence of God. This must not have been something that happens all the time. And Jacob is, is taken back by it. He's frightened, but he goes, this is an awesome place. This is none other than the house of God, this place where I am. And, um, this is, uh, if you go back to Genesis uh, 12, 13, uh, Abraham also was going through this place. And when Abraham went through this place, he built an altar to God. So there must be something about Bethel that there, where the presence of God lived at that point. And um, because grandfather Abraham built an altar here, when Jacob comes here, he has a dream about God with this ladder to heaven. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place. Now, what's every time I read this, this chapter or this verse, uh, Genesis 28, 16, I'm hearkened back to my college days. I went to Arizona State University, and as part of that, I was part of what they called the University Choir. And the University Choir was directed by none other than my father-in-law. Uh, he had moved to Phoenix to take over a professorship position at the Arizona State University. He taught choral music, music theory, music history, all sorts of things. Very fascinating man. Um, and uh, he wrote weird songs, and one of them was based upon this text from Genesis chapter 28. And it wasn't a song as it was a patter, I guess you want to say. But you had four different parts to it. And one part would say, surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place. 
and another person would, and then another group would say, this is none other, none other, none other, none other than the house of God. This is none other, none other, none other, none other, none other than the house of God. And so you put those two together and it's kind of cool. And then you'd have gate of heaven, gate of heaven. And then the final group would say, and this is the gate of heaven, and this is the gate of heaven. So basically, I know it's kind of weird, but you'd start out with, surely the Lord is in this place. And you start that going. And then the, then the next person would sing, or you know, the next group would sing, this is none other, none other, none other, none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And this is the gate of heaven. Gate of heaven, gate of heaven. It was, it was kind of, a, we'd, we'd do it. And uh, it was actually a crowd pleaser of a song when we'd sing it, because it's real short. I mean, it only lasts a minute. Uh, has no music in it, whatever. It's just a, it's a patter. You know, it's a rhythm song. I guess it's the first rap song that I ever sang, right? No, it wasn't rap. It's, but it was a, it was a rhythm song. So whenever I get to this this passage, I'm always I hearken back to my college days and sitting in university choir. I was a second tenor, uh, listening to you know basically performing this music. Um. So, but aside from that, there's actually a biblical story behind it, which is that surely this is where God dwells. And I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And, um, you know, when you think about gates, uh, gates don't move, right? When, when Peter declares uh, to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and, and, and Jesus says to Peter, um, upon this rock I shall build my church and the gates of heaven shall not prevail upon it, right? So you have gates of heaven and you have gates of hell. Uh, no, he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail upon it. So you have gates of heaven, you have gates of hell. So somehow you've got evil forces and good forces and the gates of hell, you know, that gate's gonna be closed at some point and all the hell will go, will go away. But, the, but the, there's gates to hell, there's gates to heaven. This is a gate of heaven that Jacob is at, and um, he sees the presence of God. And we talked about this a little bit. Every, every once in a while, you know, um, you might feel the absolute presence of God in your life. Um, as Christians, we don't have to go to a place to feel the presence of God. The presence of God actually exists in us. And when we're around other Christians, whenever two or more gathered in my name, gathered in my name, so if you are with another Christian, but you're gathered in Jesus' name, then God is present. So we don't have to go to a place. We don't have to go to a building. We don't have to go to a synagogue. We don't have to go to Israel. Uh, we don't even have to go to a church. Now, church is where God exists because you typically have more than two people gathered in Jesus' name at a you know at a church building. Um, but any place where two Christians are gathered in in the name of Jesus, then God is there in the midst of them, which is which is huge, my friends, because. Uh, we don't have to argue and fight over land anymore. We don't have to fire, argue and fight over location. The Christian church can exist anywhere. The Christian church exists wherever two or more gathered in the name of Jesus. That can happen in houses. That can happen in a Starbucks. Uh, it can happen wherever. Christians come together in the name of Jesus. That's where God is. I mean, it's a huge, great theology that Jesus uh, gave us. And Pentecost is the church, you know, the Holy Spirit descending upon every Christian. So when two Christians are gathered in Jesus' name, the Holy Spirit is activated and Pentecost is there and it's awesome. Really cool. All right, 
So that is where Jacob is. And he says, this is none other than the house of God. And what does he do about that? Well, let's find out. Let's go at verse 18. So early the next morning, Jacob took a stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Um, so here we have Jacob. He takes this stone and he placed, uh, he took, took the stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the place Bethel. And Bethel still exists today. I think it's Bayet El or something like that. But it's about, I don't know, 10, 15 miles north of uh, Jerusalem. It's still there. And he called the place Bethel. And uh, though this city used to be called Luz, but he took the stone and he placed it on his head. Now, the reason why I'm laughing is because Jennifer and I, about three or four years ago, we saw this movie called The Stone of Destiny. And uh, if you haven't seen this stone, it's really interesting. It's, it's a, based on a true story. In the 1950s, uh, there was a, it's called the Coronation Stone. And the, cor the, cor the history of this thing in the coronation stone is that it's actually the stone of Jacob, all right? That somehow archaeologists found the stone of Jacob at Bethel and brought it back to England, and it ended up into Scotland. And for years, I mean, I don't know, hundreds of years, this was the Scottish stone, and it's, it's Jacob's stone. And then they had this war, this, you know, Scotland became part of England, and the stone ended up back in uh, London at Westminster Abbey. And apparently, this is Jacob's stone, right? It's the stone of destiny. And for years, it was in Scotland, but it ended up... And so in the 50s, these four college students actually went uh, into Westminster Abbey and stole the stone to bring it back to Scotland, okay? And uh, while they were removing the stone, it actually dropped and it broke into two. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's one thing to take a historical artifact 6,000 years, 4,000 years old and, um, and bring it back, you know, unharmed. But these four college students actually broke the stone. I mean, just, it's, oops. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Uh, we're watching this movie. It's like, don't drop it. And they drop it. And we're like, oh, that is 4,000 year old history. Anyway, so um, if you've never seen this uh, movie or even heard about this story, uh, I think it's probably available somewhere on Netflix or Amazon or something like that. I think it's called, I think the movie is called Stone of Destiny. And um, it's the story of, of this, this coronation stone that ended up in, in London and, and then it ends up back in uh, Scotland. Um, and uh, apparently it is the, it is, apparently it's the, you know, if folklore is to be believed, which, you know, I don't know. Um, it's kind of big, though. I, I mean, it takes, if, if I remember from the movie, I mean, it's not, it's not something that one person could really move unless they're really powerful. So I don't know. Um, but it is possible. And, it, you know, he, next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar. So it must be a larger stone. Um, maybe it was a stone that was kind of carved in the shape of a, because the one that they have, I mean, the one in the movie, I think the one uh, that you'll see is is actually kind of a rectangular uh, shaped stone. I mean, it's, it's like a cube, an elongated cube. Um, 
But anyway, uh, if it is or not the stone, um, it is kind of a fun story, that's for sure. I mean, you, you got to love college students, right? That they're going to go and protect the destiny of their of their native Scotland and go get the stone and pour oil of it. And oops, it broke. Sorry about that, bloke. <laughs> I don't even know if that's how they speak in Scottish. But anyway, so just thought I'd share that with you because that's interesting. All right, so we'll go finish this chapter. Um, we're going to go back. We'll go back to verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking the journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord my God will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now that is very fascinating. Um, it almost sounds like, what, what is Jacob? He's making a vow with God, isn't he? I mean, it's, and we do this, I mean, humans, we do this all the time, right? Like God, this is, this is the quintessential story about Luther, right? Uh, he's he's coming home from college. There's a storm, and he doesn't pray to God. He prays to Anne, which is Mary's mother, and says, "Anne, save me! If you save me, and Anne, I guess, is the patron saint of lightning or something. I don't know, but anyway, he prays to her and says, "Please, please save me! If you save me, then I'm going to become a monk." Of course, he's saved, so he becomes a monk. But these are there's deals that we do all the time, right? God just do this and I will do that. And, um, you know, God, show me your presence and I will do this. And we're always trying to make deals with God. Well, let me tell you something. You can't make a deal with God. Um, we want to make deals with God and sometimes we make deals with God. And, and you know, when you, when you make a deal, when you make a vow to God uh, and you say, God, if you get me through this, I'm going to do such and such. You better, you better come through the deal, first of all, right? You don't just flippantly make a deal and say, hey, thanks for getting me. Oh, I remember that vow. I mean, so be very, very careful when you make a vow with God uh, because there are, he will um, listen to your vow and you, know, and you can't go against something that you promised to God. So be very, very careful about that. But the second thing is that God doesn't always just say, okay, I'm going to take you up on your deal. Sometimes God lets things happen that are not in your best interest or not the way he wants the earth to go. So if you've got someone sick, dying of cancer, you say, God, um, you know, heal this person from cancer. And if you do, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give a tenth of all I own, you know, to the church or something. I mean, or, you know, to some organization. Um, God, God is a one-way negotiator. It's God's way <laughs> and period. <laughs> and, um, there are times where we can plead and ask God, and He will. And Scripture says, sometimes He changes His mind. Sometimes, because you're a persistent person, over and over again, God relents and has, um, you know, change of heart. Uh, we've seen that in Scripture, but it's uh, on God's terms. And you know, instead of make, you know, instead of saying, "If you do this, I do. I will do this," maybe just you know, pouring your heart out to God. Please, God, um, hear my heart hear the pain I'm going through and you know it's your will be done I understand that give me the strength and the courage to follow your will whatever that way is but Lord I really would like your will to be in this direction um, because God is God is all-powerful all-knowing he knows the way the earth is gonna go and he knows his part in it 
He knows your part in it, and he's going to make it go. I mean, it's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the first part of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, it always starts with God's will. We always pray, first and foremost, God, let your will be done on this earth. Let your will be done on me. Help me to have the courage and the strength to follow you in your will. Um, but please, Lord, hear my heart about this situation and uh, know the pain and suffering that I'm going to go through because of this. Uh, and I'm not sure I'm strong enough for it or, you know, whatever. Um, and... Uh, that is really the reality of life, right? Is that we want, we want to control God, but God is uncontrollable. The, the best that we can hope for is that we, we accept God's control of our life and then ask for his spirit and his wisdom and his guidance to be his hands and feet to help him control the earth as best as he can through his human, you know, his human hands and feet. So, um, so, but, but the other thing is, is that, um, but that's actually not what this verse is about. <laughs> he got off on a tangent, but then Jacob made a vow saying, uh, if you'll be with me and we'll watch on me over on this journey, I'm taking this, if God will be with me, um, in, uh, so this is in the Hebrew Bible, which is written in Hebrew and, but, but. This is actually being penned by Moses. So up until the time of Moses, this is an oral history. Moses takes the oral history and writes it down in the Hebrew language. And that's the standard that's been there. It still exists that we still have that Bible. But in the, oh, I don't know, sometime, oh man, in the early uh, early part of after Jesus, uh, they decided to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And they had 70 Hebrew scholars that they they commissioned to translate from the Hebrew into Greek. And they the story goes, or the legend goes, that each of these 70 Hebrew scholars were sent out to prepare a translation of the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, which means it had the, the vowels actually written into it. Um, that text... They were going to translate that into Greek, and they sent it out to 70 Hebrew scholars. They all came back, and the legend is, is that they all translated it identically into a Greek text. Now, the reason why I pulled this out is because Greek is like the calculus language. There is no more uh, exacting, I mean, how to speak it the exact meaning of it, um, the placement of it. I mean, if you want a language that is like the most complex but accurate language that there possibly is, it's Greek. Now, some would say Latin, but Latin is a derivative of Greek, and Greek is even more complex than Latin is. And so Greek is, I, I want to call it the calculus of languages, right? I mean, it is the language. So these 70 guys came back and they translated from Hebrew to Greek and that's called the Septuagint. Sept meaning 70. It's Septuagint version of scripture, which is the Old Testament Hebrew translated into Greek. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because when they translated this, uh, when the 70 Hebrew scholars translated it into Greek, this, if God will be with me, 
Now you have to now we're in the Greek language, which is very, very um, exact. This is called a third class conditional if. And a third class conditional if in the Greek language means if, Lord, and I know it to be true. So it's not if, and I have no idea what's going to happen, but if, and I know it's going to be true. It's an aeon. It's a subjective, a subjunctive third class conditional Greek uh, aeon, if. So what we can actually read this to be, if God, and I know it to be true, you will be with me. Um, and so if I know it's going to be true, some, some actually uh, translations will say since or uh, since I know you're going to be or when God you are with me or as you are with me. I mean, there's a, there is a, there is a sense of certainty that this is going to actually happen. And the Greek language actually has a way of saying that. And it's a third class conditional thing. So that's what this means. So you could actually translate this when God, you are with me. And when you watch over me on this journey that I'm taking, and when you give me food to eat, and when you give me clothes to earth wear so that I return safely to my father's household, um, then um, I will know, it will be proof, it will be further proof that you are my God, and you are my Lord, and you're my God. And this stone I have set up will be a pillar of the house of God, and I will give you every, you know, a tenth of all that you've given me. I mean, there's a lot more certainty in this verse than just if. I mean, this isn't really a, it's, it's more, it's not really a vow like we would take uh, today. You know, God, you do these things, I'm going to do these things. This is more certainty in Jacob's mind. It's God, God, I know you're going to be with me. Um, and so I'm going to set up this stone to be a pillar of the house of God. And I'm going to give you a tenth of all I own. Now, uh, where does this tenth go? I mean, that doesn't make any sense either, right? I mean, where there are, there is no synagogue yet. There's no Levi class or whatever. So, the tenth that we're talking about here is probably uh, at some point Jacob is going to, and maybe it's right there. He takes a tenth of what he has and he burns it on an altar. I mean, that's what the altar was used for his grandfather Abraham. He set up an altar and he probably burned something on the altar. And so, here Jacob sets up this stone. He doesn't really call it an altar. Maybe he just leaves it on the stone. Like maybe he leaves with ten, with 90% of his possessions. But maybe he has nothing on him. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's just water and food and that's about it. But, but it must have been an experience with God so powerful that he wanted to give something back to God. And this is really, I mean, that's really what... I mean, we, we talk about tithing and we talk about giving back to God and all that sort of thing. But at its root, um, giving back to God is an overwhelming sense that God has blessed you so much that you cannot help but give something back to him. And, you know, put, could put an altar. It could be your time. It could be talent, treasure. And where that goes, that's up to you. Um, but... But having that generous heart that is so overwhelmed that you want to give back to God is really truly the heart that I think uh, I'm striving for in my own life. Like I want, I want to be so overwhelmed with God's love that I can't help but just give back to Him. And um, so that's, that's basically the sense of this thing. And so Jacob makes a vow. You can call it a vow if you want, but he does... You know, he does say he's going to give him a tenth. And so he probably does. And that stone was there for a very long time until 
At some point, some archaeologists went to Bethel and found this stone and brought it back to Scotland where it stayed for centuries and then it was stolen. It was taken to Westminster Abbey and then it was stolen by these college students. And, um, and now it's broken into. They actually have, I think the actual the stone has been put back together and it's on display somewhere. I don't even know where it is. I should, I should do some investigation of that. This is another thing that I want to do if I ever make it to England again or Scotland. Jennifer's been to England, Scotland, and Wales. I've only been to England. Um, I want to go find this stone and take a picture of it and just see it uh, because I think that would be really, really cool. If it still exists. I can't remember. It's been such a long time since I've seen this movie. Um, five, six years ago that we saw it. Um, but it's just one of those things I want to do. And um, so... Maybe, maybe, you know, today's Friday. Maybe Jennifer and I will watch the movie again tonight and I'll report back again on Monday. More information about the stone if it's interesting. Uh, it may not be interesting. And there's, there's a whole bunch of other movies that are on our, you know, we don't watch a lot of movies. So when we do decide to hit, this is a night to watch a movie, then we've got a list. But maybe we will. I don't know. All right. Well, um, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, this is Jacob's dream at Bethel. He's continuing on his way to Uncle Laban's house. And uh, Mom Rebecca thinks this is a short trip. Uh, Isaac thinks it's a short trip. Esau thinks it's a short trip. It's not a short trip. Uh, when he gets to Laban's house, he's there for a, a good long time. Uh, so, but we'll, we'll talk about that story when we get to it. And uh, hey, thanks for joining me today. Um, well, let me, let's close in prayer. Dear God, uh, help us to basically, I mean, Lord, help us to follow your will. Help us to have your will in our life done so that we are, hands and, we are your hands and feet. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. Thank you for the rain last night. Watch over us over this weekend. Bring us back again safely on Monday. In Jesus' name we pray.